Well, I'm excited to begin in earnest now in the study of Isaiah. We have done a number of the minor prophets as part of our Sunday night series and then spent time on Wednesday nights in exploring them even deeper. Uh, We're taking a break from the Gospel of John for a little bit. We'll take on a few chapters of Isaiah and then come back to John and we'll just kind of be interspersing uh, these as we go theme by theme through Isaiah and then theme by theme through John and we'll kind of rotate them uh, back and forth. And so we'll do the next few chapters of Isaiah uh, over the next few weeks. In the first nine verses of Isaiah 1, we've already studied that. We saw uh, the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy to the nation of Judah and Jerusalem, pointing out to them how they have been extremely stubborn toward God. They have chosen not to obey Him, and that is why these judgments are falling upon them, even criticizing them to the point of saying, that even a stubborn donkey is smarter than you who understands where the master would feed them and give protection but you don't understand that I the Lord am the one to provide for you and take care of you. And so that's the beginning song of sorts that Isaiah now offers and verses 10 through uh, 20 now is going to give a little bit more information about what is going on. Verse 9 ended with a statement of grace. If it had not been for God to intervene, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, devastated, in ruins, utterly destroyed. But God intervened on our behalf, and this seems to be likely referring to uh, the Assyrian turnaround that occurred as we have the Assyrians uh, on the brink of taking over the whole nation. They've taken every city. Jerusalem is the last city standing. We read in the King's account that 185,000 are immediately killed by an angel of the Lord saving the day under the reign of Hezekiah. But God's not done with them in all of that. And now turns the tables upon them and expresses his displeasure with the people. And so you'll notice now Isaiah chapter 1, and we're going to read verse 10 through 20. Isaiah 1 verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my corpse? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That ends the reading of God's word for tonight. And that's going to be our text this evening. You'll notice how God begins in describing his great displeasure for the people. When you read verse 10, you should feel the weight of insult here. It is one thing in verse 9 to say, now, if it hadn't been for God's intervention and because of God's grace, we would have been turned to rubble and we would have been completely done in judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah. But then verse 10, to now call Jerusalem to call the people of Judea, to tell them and say, you are like Sodom, you are like Gomorrah to me, is of the highest offense. To call upon the rulers and the people and say, your sins are so offensive to me that I see you like Sodom. I treat you like Gomorrah. You are in such rebellion against me. And so it is a weighty beginning for God to call them that. And it really speaks highly of the nature of their sins and how greatly they stand against God. And then you see in verse 11 a couple of staggering things. First of all, I think it is interesting in verse 11 that he does not say that these are his sacrifices. When you bring me my sacrifices as you offer them to me, he says, these are your sacrifices. This is your doing. This isn't what is pleasing to me. This is what is pleasing to you. And notice the threefold declaration that he makes. What to me is the multitude of these sacrifices? Do you really think that I want all of this? In fact, he goes on and says, I have had enough of the burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls and of rams and goats. Here is this declaration. Who who has required this of you? Who said to do all of this? And he's basically saying these sacrifices mean nothing to me. They add nothing to me. They're doing nothing for me. I want no part of this. Which should be astounding to us because they are doing what the Levitical law taught. They're bringing their sacrifices. They're keeping the feast. They're keeping the Sabbath. They're doing everything that God has prescribed. And God is saying, who has told you to do this? Why are you doing this? I don't want any part of it. These things do nothing for me. There's no value in them in the slightest to me. Which leads to an enormous question that the the reader is left hanging for the moment is why? Why in doing all that God has prescribed for them to do, does God say, I'm not interested in it. I find no value in these things. Who said to do this? I've had enough of these sacrifices. I have no delight in the offerings that you're making. The big question is why? What has gone wrong? And before we're allowed to move forward and consider the reason behind it, it is important to observe that God is not pleased with all worship. 
even when it's done to the prescription that he offers, that does not mean that God will delight in it. It doesn't mean that he wants it. And it doesn't mean that he accepts it. And it's an important lesson that we learn about worship. That it's not just simply doing it to do it. There's something more to it than that that God is able to put his finger on here and say, even though you're bringing me all your offerings and all your sacrifices and keeping all the feast festivals and days, I have no delight in them. I find no pleasure in them. I do not enjoy any bit of it. And it reminds us then that there is a worship that is acceptable to God. And any old worship will not do. It needs to be done in a way that is accepted by God. And so let's look at what the problem is. You'll notice verse 12 has a great imagery. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? It sounds like he's saying there's all kinds of religious activity going on. There's all kinds of footsteps going on in the temple courts. And he's probably also alluding to the fact of all the animals that are probably traversing through there and the sacrifices. We've got all kinds of religious activity. We've all got kinds of religious noise going on. We're hauling in the animals. We've got the worshipers coming in and out. And notice he says there, now, who required that of you? Why are you doing this? Which again holds this big question of, well, why are you upset they're doing what you've said? And here you're turning around and saying, why are you doing this? Who's required it of you? Verse 13 begins to tell us the problem here. Notice the very last sentence of verse 13. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Now Isaiah puts his finger on the issue. I do not delight in all of your worship when your lives are full of sin. Here you are bringing your sacrifices. Here you are bringing in the animals. Here you are keeping your feasts and days. And he says, I cannot endure your solemn assemblies and the iniquity that you have tied. Your life is full of sin. That's what I uh, haven't advertised it this way, but I've kind of humorously in my mind called today Repentance Sunday. Because we looked at this with Zacchaeus, and now this is exactly the heart of the problem that Isaiah is talking about. Here are a group, is a group of people. They have unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Their life is not changed for God, and yet they're doing all the externals. They're bringing their offerings. They're giving their sacrifices. What's the problem? Lord, why don't you like our offerings? Why is it all an abomination to you? Because your lives are full of sin. And that's what you see going on throughout this text. Notice verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. And if you were to put that in our common vernacular, what he is saying is, I hate it. With all of my heart, with every ounce of my being, I cannot stand your sacrifices and your feasts and all that you're doing. Take it all away from me. Verse 14, they have become a burden to me. Your worship of me is a burden. I can't take it anymore. I can't stand to have you do it anymore. I don't want any more of it. Who told you to do this kind of worship before me? And so as a staggering statement, and verse 15 makes it all the more clear. When you spread out your hands, 
I will hide my eyes from you. Why? Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Your lives are full of sin. And so though you come before me with your prayers, I'm not listening to them. Even though you enter the doors of worship and you come into the temple courts, he says, I'm not accepting any of those things. And it is an immense reminder, a great teaching to us about how our prayers are blocked when we are engaging in unrepentant sin, when we are living in a relationship outside of him because we are choosing our own way and living our own sinful way. We have no relationship with God. Here's God saying, I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. And then verse 15 is probably the worst of all. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face. Here's God turning his back on them. You have no access to me. When you are filled with your unrepentant, unconfessed sin, I will have nothing to do with you. We have no relationship together. And so if you're going to live your life like that, who told you to come worship me this way? Why are you bringing your sacrifices if you're going off living how you want to live? Why are you keeping these feasts and days when you're living lives full of sin? He says, I don't want any part of it then. I can't bear it anymore. I don't want to see it. My soul hates it. I can't take it anymore. And so it is so weighty what God says here, his displeasure with the people who are putting the form together right, who are offering their sacrifices and have seemingly appropriate worship. And yet the lifestyle is a lifestyle of sin. And God says, I know what you're doing. I see what's going on. I see how you live your life. And I do not accept your worship When you live with unrepentant sin, I'm not going to accept it. I will not listen. In fact, not only will I not listen to it, we should hear the words of what God says. He hates it. He can't stand it. He rejects it and will not have anything to do with it. And so thankfully, the Lord tells us what to do about that. Verses 16 and 17, he now gives us a description about what God wants. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Here he lays out a five-prong attack. Here's what God requires of you. And the first is very obvious. You need to clean yourself up. You need to get rid of the sin that's in your life. It is time to remove this unrepentant sin. Stop engaging in the ways of the world. Stop thinking that you can continue to practice the sins that you want to commit in your life and still be in a relationship with God. Stop thinking it. Cleanse yourselves, wash yourselves to make yourselves clean. Recognize that a life filled with sin is unacceptable to God. And the first step is to recognize I can't live that way anymore. I can't do what I want to do. I can't just be involved in unrepentant sin and think that's going to be okay before God. In fact, he drives that point a little bit further in verse 16. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And that's a very clunky literal translation, but I think it's a really important one. It's not just simply, I don't want your evil, get your evil out of here. That's part of it. 
But notice the phrasing here. Remove the evil of your deeds from my eyes. Not just remove the evil deeds, but remove the evil from your deeds. And the idea seems to be pictured here is that it's not just merely stop the evil acts, but there is the evil that is perpetuating because of the choices that you've made, and you need to do something about that. In fact, you'll see the second half of 16 and all of 17 is exactly that. A description of here's how you need to clean this evil off. You have made horrible, sinful decisions and now you need to correct those things. Now you need to fix those things. It's not just merely, okay, I'll stop sitting, sorry about that. No, you need to take some proactive action. There are some things that you need to do to correct the situation. And that is exactly what we see Zacchaeus doing. That's why it ties so well to what we saw this morning. Zacchaeus doesn't simply go, you're right, I'll stop swindling everybody. Alright, good. No. And I will restore fourfold. I will clean the evil of my deeds. I will remove the evil of my deeds. I have done wrong. It's not enough to say, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. It is all about saying, now what can I do to fix that? And that's what God is calling here. Remove the evil of your deeds. You have committed sin and you need to rectify that before God. You need to write that before God. And what God is trying to teach the people then is that our worship becomes beautiful to God. And acceptable to God when we remove the evil of our deeds. He wants worship from us when we have done everything that we can to remove that evil, to get the sin out of our lives and to make recompense and restitution in any way that we can. And I submit to you that Jesus taught that very thing. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, some, there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I don't want your worship until you get the uncleanness out. And I'll just put it this way. God wants repentance driven worship. That's what he's looking for out of these people. He's not calling them for sinless worship. We're going to have sin. But what are you going to do with that? Are you going to repent and take those things before God? Are we going to open our hands before God and confess and repent and make restitution and do whatever we can to be holy in His sight? Or will we ignore our sins and think we're okay before God and not do anything about them? He's calling them here as his first point. I want repentance. I want you to stop the evil. I want you to remove the evil of your deeds. It is time to wash yourselves and be clean. Number two, in verse 16, he says, cease to do evil. Now we get to the, you have to abandon the old life. God is not going to accept our worship and we're not in a relationship with him if we continue to do all the things that we were doing when we were not a Christian. If we continue to act like the world, if we continue to live like the world and engage in the things that we did before we came to Christ, God says, I have no relationship with you and I do not accept your worship. Abandon the old life. Cease those sins. Stop that lifestyle. And that is an important message that we have to convey. 
Jesus is not about, well, you need to be baptized and come to him, and then you can go on your merry way living however you want to live, just like you were before. Jesus doesn't call us to minor life modification. He calls us to radical life change, radical transformation. And we cannot convey to people, well, all you need to do is get in the baptistry and then you're going to be okay and you just go on doing what you're doing. Cease the old life. The Apostle Paul would describe it as putting to death the old self or the old man and then putting on that new self in righteousness and holiness. There is a putting away of the way that we used to live. And God is calling for that out of these people. You can't live like that anymore. You've made a decision to be my people. Cease the sin. You can't go back and live like the world. You cannot be like them. Verse 17, there needs to be a new mind. Learn. Learn to do good. God's people have to adopt a whole new way of thinking. I love how the Apostle Paul put that in Romans chapter 12, that we're no longer conformed to the image of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. And he says, you have to learn my ways. You need to learn the right path. And so develop this new mind. Learn to do good. Don't learn evil. Cease the worldly ways and develop a new mind. Develop a new attitude. Develop a new heart that seeks to do good. That seeks to follow the ways of God. This mind, heart, attitude transformation. God is calling for his people to have. So develop that new mind. Number four then. Notice that there. Number four in verse 17. Seek justice. And essentially is then they were setting new objectives for our lives. It's time for a complete change of priorities. Here he tells them, you can't do the things that you were doing before. It's time to seek justice. It is time to seek what God is looking for you to do. It's a whole new way of living. And so I'm not going to be like the world. I'm going to have a new mind, learn the new way, and then I'm going to act upon it. I'm going to seek what is right. And so God's people cannot pursue worldly things. We can't pursue what is not godly, what is not pure, what is not right and holy. There is a total change that we now begin to seek after the ways of God. And then number five, notice it all bunches together. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, put things back to right. This is what we've been talking about this morning and we see it brought around here again. What does repentance look like? Now you need to do the right things. You haven't been upholding the fatherless and the widows. You haven't been pleading their cause. You haven't been correcting oppression. So it isn't just simply, okay, stop sinning. No, now you need to fix all that. Correct the oppression. You need to do what is right to the fatherless. You need to plead the widow's cause. You need to do what is right. And so correct those things. Make those changes. And now seek after God, righting the wrongs and doing what God has called you to do. And so that's what Isaiah is telling them. It's time to fix this up. This is what God requires of you. Wash these sins. You get clean before him. Change your heart. Change your life. Uh, Reject that old life and put things to right as God has called you to do. And now watch God's appeal. This This is a beautiful appeal. Verses 18 through 20. This is not 
I do not believe a, a ferocious or legal kind of case is being presented. Many of the prophets will do that. Where they'll put their charge, they'll kind of put it on the witness stand and say, alright, here's God's charge against you and you are being weighed in the balances. But I don't think that's the point here. This seems to be a compassionate plea that God is ready to meet them with grace and mercy. Verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. The call, a compassionate call to the people. And it is a hope that God is saying, let's settle the matter. Let's resolve our differences. I have told you what you need to do, but it's not too late. And this is a very weighty statement that Isaiah gives here. In all of their sins, their hands are full of blood. God says, I'm not even listening to your prayers because you're so full of sin. I don't even have a relationship with you when you cry out to me. My face is hidden from you. But he says, let's reason this together. Let's settle the matter. You can come back to me. And though you are sin-stained like blood... I can make you white. I can make you pure. You can become clean with God. It is not too late. And that is a beautiful picture when you see the weight of their sin, when you see the gravity of their sin, you see how filled with sin they are, so much so that God says, I cannot stand your worship anymore. He says, I'll make you clean. You can be pure before me again. There is no point that we cannot come back to God. There is no line crossed that says, well, I've done so many sins, it just isn't going to work out for me anymore. Here is God saying, you can be made white even though you are drenched in sin. You are filled that I can't even bear to stand to see you anymore. But let's settle the matter. And he gives them a choice in this compassionate call. Notice what he says here in verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. The choice is yours. Our hope is not found in ourselves. Our hope is not found in going back to the old life and doing what we want to do and what we think is right. Our hope is found in doing God's things. You can be made clean. You can be made pure. And what is amazing about what he says here is God is saying the ball is in your court. The choice is yours. If you're willing, I'll make you clean. If you want this, I'll I'll bless you. I'll give you everything that you need. I'll give you everything that that I've, I've promised. You can receive life. You can receive my blessings. And the only thing that stops us from this renewal with God, the only thing that prevents us from cleansing of sins, you won't like this, but neither do I. The only thing that stops us is our stubbornness. That's what he told them in the first nine verses. Even the donkey knows who feeds him and comes back. 
and yet my people don't recognize that they need to come back to me. The choice is ours. If we want to be made clean, there's absolutely nothing in the way of that. God has not put up any barriers or obstacles. The only barrier is our stubbornness. Because God says, if you're willing, if you're obedient, if you'll come to me, I'll make you clean. I'll bless you. I'll purify you. But notice verse 20. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten with the sword. Judgment is sure. If we refuse and remain stubborn in our sins and continue to live how we want to live and do not adopt the new mind that God is calling us to learn, if we do not right the wrongs and drive at repentance-driven worship, God says, then judgment is surely going to be yours. But the choice is yours. The choice is not God's. If you're willing, He'll clean you. But if we refuse and we rebuild, then the only thing that is left for us is a certain judgment. And verse 20 brings the weight of that when you have a statement that has verse 20 ends. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is as sure as it gets. Here is God's intention and promise and purpose. It cannot be altered or changed. If you are willing, I will cleanse you. If you refuse, judgment is yours. And so he gives them that choice. And so what I want to leave you with is those five pieces then. What will we do with God? Will we bring him repentant lives? Will we take our sins before him in sorrow, in repentance, in desiring to cease from sinning and trying to do what is right? Or will we continue down our own path? Isaiah gave us the picture very well. Stop the old life. Cease from sinning. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Don't engage in the ways of the world. Don't listen to the world and think that that kind of lifestyle is okay. God does not accept our worship and God is not in relationship with us and God does not hear our prayers, Isaiah says. If we continue in that old life, if we continue in the ways of sin, develop a new mind. It's time to learn the ways of God. Reteach ourselves. Relearn. Rewire everything that we've ever learned about what is right and wrong and wire it to the ways of God. Learn what He wants from us, not what the world wants from us. Set new objectives. Time to seek Him. New priorities. New life. Everything changes. Now Jesus is the priority. Boy, did we not see that in Zacchaeus. What an amazing, radical change. From swindler, thief, and thug that nobody wanted to be around, all of a sudden he's like, okay, I'll change everything. I'll completely change everything. I'll give half my goods to the poor and I'll restore to everybody fourfold. Here's this right here. New objectives, new priorities. Everything changes for him now. That's what repentance looks like. That's what God is looking for. That we correct and put everything back to right. Try to do exactly what God has taught us to do. And when we do not do that, then our worship is unacceptable. God wants a worship that is an overflow of repentance. And Sundays are a great day for that. After a long week of failure and sinfulness and temptation and weakness. 
to humbly come into the doors of God and say, Lord, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness and I need your strength to do what is right and I want to seek you and obey you. Not arrogantly or in rebellion coming before God in worship and saying, well, I'm going to live how I want to live. I can't wait to get back to all that stuff that I was doing that's sinful. But broken and contrite hearts that come and partake of the Lord's Supper and remember the body and blood of our Lord and are moved because of our sinfulness and His graciousness and a willingness then to put aside the life of sin and find purity and cleanliness from our sins. Our hope is found in God's way and God wants us to seek His way it's not too late to find forgiveness. This invitation song, as you pull your song books out, is a song that invites you to find cleanliness, to find your sins to be washed away. We are singing the song in an effort for you to consider where you stand before God. If you have not taken on the conditions that God has described to receive His grace, that you believed in Him with all of your heart, that you have repented of the sins, you've started the new life and confessed Him as Lord and were immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that is the starting point to enter a relationship with Him. Those are the things that you must do to find His grace to become children of God. If you've done those things, but are filled with unrepentant sin, Listen to the strong words of Isaiah. God does not accept us living in unrepentant sin. God wants our hearts. He wants us to bring our sins before Him. He wants us to be broken by those sins and to humbly confess those things to Him. Turn away from doing those things. Make a dedication of heart and mind to strive to do what is right and holy and pure and do whatever we can to right the wrongs that we've committed, the offenses that we've done, whatever we can to set things back on course to be in the image of Christ. Please do that. The opportunity is yours. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?